0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what can food tell us about stories of migration? If you're about to tuck into a silky baba ganoush with a side of pita bread or dollop a spoonful of harissa onto shakshuka, then all credit goes to my guest, the food writer Claudia Roden. She introduced Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cooking into kitchens across the Western world. Over six decades, her fuss-free, flavoursome dishes have changed the way we eat. Born in Cairo in 1936, the Suez Crisis forced her Jewish family to flee to London in the 1950s. To remember the tastes of home, she jotted down the recipes of fellow refugees and turned them into her first cookbook, the best-selling A Book of Middle Eastern Cooking, published in 1968. Her latest offering, Med, has us gorging on feasts from the sun-soaked French Riviera to the spice-scented souks of Morocco. But for this octogenarian, food is more than just what's on the plate. It's a way of connecting us to our roots. Claudia Rodin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Well, thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Now, I'm going to let a bit of daylight in on podcasting. We often test the volume of our microphones when we start recording by asking guests to tell us what they had for breakfast. And usually we don't publish this answer because he's often quite boring. But with you, Claudia, I really want to know what you had for breakfast.
0: Well, it's just more than boring because I don't have breakfast. (laughs) I just have a coffee and then I wait until about 11 o'clock because I feel otherwise I'll be eating the whole time.
1: And if I were to look in your fridge right now, What would I find there? I mean, what are your core ingredients, if you like, fridge or cupboard, that you just can't live without?
0: Well, I've always got vegetables of some kind, but particularly I always have tomatoes, cucumbers, lettuce, because I always feel I need a salad. But apart from that, I have cheeses and I have salamis and I've got some white wines in the fridge as well, quite a few.
1: (laughs) Good. I like the sound of that. But you see, if I open my fridge, I think I can measure some of the impact of your writing over the years. Ingredients that my parents' generation were only discovering and sometimes didn't discover, tahini, hariso, the preserved lemons, even the humble pita bread, have been turned into staples of cooking way beyond the Middle East. So what are you most... Proud of introducing to our diets
0: in your career, over six decades of it. I'm sort of thrilled to find, for instance, people like you telling me that you have read my books or your mother has read my books. So, yes, I am absolutely thrilled, but I can't quite see that I'm responsible, but I know that I am. I know people tell me I'm famous for the hummus. The queen of hummus. But I must say, I also introduced grilled halloumi and uh, also shakshuka. I find, for instance, looking at the menus of restaurants and hotels, I just smile because a lot of the things there have come out of my books. And it seems extraordinary. Because when I came, it didn't seem at all that anybody would want Middle Eastern food because it was really the enemy culture, a backward culture, uh, the images of what Middle Eastern food was, the sheep sitting on a mound of rice in a sea of fat. I remember when I was at school, I was at an English school called English School Cairo, And it was out in the desert. And all the food that we had there was yorkshire pudding, kidney pie. There was absolutely not a single thing that was local. So when I invited friends over for my birthday, I would tell my mother, please, please, just have scones, jelly, the roly-poly,
1: Can I ask you, when your family fled Egypt in 1956, that was after the Suez Crisis, they settled in London and you started to write down recipes. So why did you choose to record food as part of this big transition
0: in your life? Because there hadn't been a single cookbook in Egypt of any kind at all. I had never, ever seen a printed recipe. In Egypt, we never exchanged recipes because each family kept the food of their origins and they would never give recipes. They just passed them in the family. But when we were leaving, people were traumatized and distressed at the thought we are never going to see each other again. And I was here as an art student when all these waves of Egyptian Jews arrived over a few years. And at the beginning, I felt it was just going to be for us. I was collecting for us refugees, because if we haven't got a record, we will lose it forever. It sounds like the the
1: recipes became the connective tissue that was being torn as you moved, as you say, in traumatic circumstances often with echoes for people having to move quickly today in various parts of the world, that the food became a way of keeping that connection alive.
0: Exactly. This is who we feel we know who we are. And how
1: do you think Britain's relationship with cooking has changed since you first started writing about food here? I think you used to get Calls from supermarkets asking how on earth to sell hummus or could you taste the phyllo? It really does remind us, both sides of the Atlantic, I think, and beyond, how a lot of things of cosmopolitan eating we take for granted were seen as really
0: kind of risky adventures. Well, I think Britain went from being the worst place in the world for food to almost the very best (laughs) place in the world for food. And uh, yes, it's extraordinary. I remember looking at my uh, first book that I wrote, the first edition, I said, courgettes are baby marrows. (laughs) And I explained that there was a bread and I explained how to make it called pita, which is a bread with a pouch. And people said, I can't believe a bread can have a pouch, you know. I kept saying, try it, try it. And your latest book is called Med,
1: Mediterranean. But I think Med, its needs a broader sense of the territory of food that you cover. And you've said that writing it was a way of bringing back the past. Is it an exercise to an extent in historical preservation? What does it say about the region that you've focused on today?
0: yes. It was, and the remembering of a place where I went traveling and collecting recipes as a way of discovering a whole big region that connected me in an intimate way to a world. Uh, I'd say intimate way because when you research food, it is intimate. When you talk about food, You're not talking about politics where people are reserved and afraid. It was a world where I thought I was going to find the world that I had lost in many different kinds of ways. It was a world of food that we had lost. I mean, we revived it in Britain, but also it was a culture. A spirit, a way of life, a way of living, and also a kind of place where really food is not just about the senses, not just about the pleasure of every flavor which it is, but it's also something about the pleasure of the spirit, of people being together of conviviality, of, of bonding as well. And I missed this kind of sociability that we had in my childhood. You've also, thinking
1: about the the, the Med and the range of, of countries that you've written about, you've also published the Book of Jewish Food and you include many recipes from the Maghreb or from North African Jews, a lot of that community, has become uprooted, often in tragic circumstances. And I wondered, at what point does a cuisine become preserved, you know, to an extent, I suppose you would say, an aspic, wouldn't you, in the old-fashioned way of of preserving things in in cooking? Or do these cuisines carry on developing as diasporas spread across the world, across the
0: Atlantic and beyond? I think food, especially their own food, for refugees, for immigrants, It's really an everyday comfort. For immigrants, the keeping of their own food is a way of keeping their identity. It's a link with their old life and the families they left behind. It's who they are, the second generation. It is always food, what they keep, that survives the longest. They stop wearing their clothes, They sometimes stop speaking their language and stop playing their music, but they go on with their food. But there is another thing, is that food is also a way an immigrant community can begin to integrate its culture in a new homeland, because cooking is one of the jobs open to them. And I feel all of the refugees who are coming they certainly can give something that the hosts appreciate
1: can I ask you if there are any food traditions that you think are however being lost we've talked a lot in our conversation so far about your focus on preserving but also stretching and developing recipes and cooking after people have been uprooted or just decided that they want to move countries but Are there
0: food traditions you think we're missing or losing? I think until recently, refugees or immigrants were the ones who kept most faithfully to tradition. And of course, when they moved, they might not find the ingredients they needed. So they did use substitutes. But I think what is happening now Uh, which is that we have global culinary culture now where everything is known from uh, the internet. People learn to cook from the internet, not from their mothers anymore. And it applies to refugees as well, probably. And so they are looking to see What is trendy? Because the culinary culture is subject to fashions.
1: Ah, I wanted to ask you how you felt about this. This is not only fashions, but changing preferences, tastes, trends. Certainly in my family, if you get a lot of younger guests around your table, you're also looking at catering, vegetarian, vegan, gluten, dairy intolerant, you name it. Do you relish that as a challenge of cooking for diverse diets? Or is it, as we're among friends here, a bit of a
0: palaver? Yesterday, I had to lunch somebody who said, I don't eat meat. And you accept. So I have got lots and lots of vegetarian dishes because a lot of people of my age who are my oldest friends, they have gone vegetarian or they are fluid even my grandchildren have friends who are vegan recipes that i've tried mainly because there was somebody vegan who was coming and we thought wow this is so good it must go in the book i now have got six grandchildren So they are streetwise and they know the very, very latest trends, but also they've got used to things like a lot of sumac. When they come, they would tell me, why don't you put a bit of sumac there? And I say, well, sumac isn't Moroccan. Can you put harissa on there? I said harissa is not Turkish, <laughs> you know. So they're used to mixing everything.
1: And are you quite firm about that, Claudia? I, I, I absolutely understand that. You know, there are certain ingredients that a, a lot of people, younger people, just like, or they find it tasty and attractive. And when you say no, I, I don't want to do that because that doesn't belong in a Turkish dish. Is there a bit of a standoff in the kitchen?
0: No, I love tradition. I am thrilled with tradition, but I'm not a fundamentalist, traditionalist, I think. So I'm quite open and myself, I feel if I like something, I'll do that because I don't owe anybody an obligation to cook their food exactly.
1: You have another cookbook called Arabesque and you write there that the spirit of these cuisines is that they have no absolute rules. They're rich in variation and poor in precision. It's a lovely sentence there. But I could put the question the other way. Uh, For some of us, I was talking about this with my producer who certainly cooked a lot of your recipes and I'm a less secure cook uh, outside a few staples that it to bring up three children. So I like recipes (laughs) that sort of tell me what to do because I'm more nervous. And I wonder what's the balance then between guiding someone who picks up your cookbook and says, please just tell me what to do. You're the expert.
0: Yes, as a food writer, you have to give as many indications to make it what we call foolproof. And unless you burn something and it's unedible, there are no mistakes possible. You can always accept it as it is. And if you like it, then it's right. It doesn't need to be as the book says. I know a lot of chefs from
1: Yotem Otolenghi to Alice Waters have credited you as an inspiration, which must be lovely to hear. And I think you once went to the River Cafe, which is a famous restaurant in London and found one of your own recipes was on the menu. And how does that feel? Are you pleased or sometimes even a bit peeved to find out that chefs have adapted your
0: recipes? Uh, I'm pleased and I usually like the adaptations. (laughs) Yes, I usually do because people do adapt and change. And certainly I feel people like Jota Motolegi and a lot of those who are doing Middle Eastern and North African mix, which is they make a nouvelle cuisine. You wouldn't find it in the country very often. They have made something new. Some of them have done it in a marvelous way and it's become eclectic British cuisine as well.
1: Let let me talk to you a bit about uh, the season we're coming into, Claudia. We're speaking at the start of the festive period. Listeners will be getting their sleeves rolled up on their shopping lists for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for Hanukkah. What will you be cooking? Give us a a sense of the menu or maybe the odd recipe.
0: I will do lamb and I'll do shoulder of lamb and I'll do a slow-cooked one because... It's easy and it's absolutely delicious. It means it cooks for four hours. All you do is just put it in the oven and that's all and forget it. For these kinds of big occasions, I make something terribly easy. And it could be, in this case, I'll do a couscous. In it, I'll put things of Christmas, for instance, chestnuts and walnuts dates and raisins oh it sounds wonderful listen a lot of us are going to be entertaining
1: a bit of a larger crowd than we were able to last year for the holidays and bigger guest list wonderful to sit down with but a bit harder sometimes to uh, prepare for do you ever get stressed when you cook for a big
0: crowd i've got very used to it
1: how many people can you cook for then? Come on, shame us all. How many people can you comfortably cook for by yourself?
0: 16. Since I'm 85, I <laughs> I haven't got the strength to do it often, the 16. I invite six people usually. It goes up because people say, can I bring this person, please, who wants to come very much? <laughs> I bet they do.
1: <laughs> I think that they're more likely to say that about your table than mine, to be honest. And, and, uh, can you share, do you ever have a disaster and and how do you go about redressing it? Do you have tricks that can bring, shall we say, not entirely successful dishes back from the brink?
0: We are always told as food writers never to say that it's a, a mistake, but I always say, no, it shouldn't have been like that. <laughs> Because nothing ever is the same. Every time you make something, it's a bit different because you're dealing with things of nature.
1: You've written about the Middle East. You've written about the Med, most recently now
0: about Spain. Is there a country or region you're still yearning to turn to? I would have really researched France, but I have a little studio in France for now 32 years, but I Keep feeling awed because I keep feeling there is so much that I have to learn. There was always so much that I had to learn with the other countries like Spain and Italy. It always took me quite a long time and I felt I had to go in deeply to do the history, to understand the lives of people in the regions, why they created the dishes that actually developed in in a certain place. I wanted to learn so much if I was going to do a book.
1: And I wondered if you'd ever had something like, I suppose you could call it a food bucket list.
0: Japan would be a place I would like to go and eat, but I would not write about it because I think these are cultures that are too late for my age. Some of you are just going to leave, others to take on. I'm just going to eat
1: and enjoy. Claudia Radin, thank you very much indeed for
0: joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
1: And we'd love to know what you think from the weird to the wonderful what's on your food bucket list. I know that there is a very rare truffle mushroom in Russia that apparently sends those who consume it into a dream. And I would love to get my hands on one of those. Write to us, podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at economist pods. And whether you're a loyal listener or a new recruit, we'd love to hear from you. So Economist Podcasts is launching a listener survey and you can tell us more through that about what you think of our shows and what you'd like to hear more of. To take part, visit economist.com forward slash economist asks survey. And don't forget that The Economist as a whole is a tempting treat. Our print and digital editions are stuffed with coverage and analysis to spark lively dinner table conversation. So tuck in and become a subscriber today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My co-chef producers are Alessia Burrell and Stevie Hertz. I'm Anne McElvoy. And in London, this is The Economist.